I'm always seeing things on the news and thinking that can't be right, can it? Listen to the KYW News Radio in depth podcast and make it make sense. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. After George Floyd was murdered by now former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin on Memorial Day 2020, the country rose up and demanded change. Two years later, the question has to be asked, have we healed from those wounds? Have we made progress toward that change? And how can we maintain the spirit to keep fighting even as more tragedy continues to happen around us? We'll talk about that today. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Brian Seltzer. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Circa. And yesterday, May 25th, marked the two-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. KYW's Community Impact reporter Raquel Williams spoke to people throughout the city about what that day changed within them. It really took a part of me, and when I say it took a part of me, as a black man, as a black male in America, where are we safe? Who do we call? It's very important to make sure that folks remember George Floyd because it changed a lot of people's view of how they look at America. That's Wendell Royster. He is the co-founder of the Philadelphia Labor for Black Lives Coalition, which organized a vigil for Floyd last night at City Hall. He also pointed out that a few months after George Floyd was murdered, the issue of police using excessive force literally hit home right here in Philadelphia when Walter Wallace Jr. was killed. Tasneem Suleiman reflected on that, too. She is the founder and CEO of Black Men Heal. It's almost like if you're dropped into a hole and you're like, okay, now I got to try to find a pull my way out. And as you're trying to pull your way out, people are still dumping all this dirt on you. And then you fall down even more. And you're like, okay, I got three steps ahead and now I'm four steps back. And I think a lot of people are feeling that way as we have seen more and more Black people lose their lives, gun violence increasing in the city. And of course, just a few days ago, a mass shooting at a Texas school. It all can leave you thinking, have we changed at all and will anything ever change? Tasmin said that she did notice a change within the black community at her organization, which does support the mental health of black men. After the George Floyd murder and then the subsequent racial riots and protests, we experienced at our organization about a 400 percent increase in applicants. Now, we as black men have a lot to heal from. And the fact that we're more willing to address mental health is progress. Jermaine Heath, who's part of the Philadelphia chapter of 100 Black Men, thinks there has been change, but we need to keep it going. Our people need to remember these things and not to just remember it to get us mad or to get us angry, but to ignite a, um, a righteous uh, cause within us to say, listen, we're not going to take this no more. Things have to change. Things must change. Um, Sometimes I believe that it's in our frustration that we can garner the power to be able to still move forward and put things in places so that we as a people could overcome some things. We'll put a link to Raquel's piece in our show notes where you can go and hear more of what the people of Philadelphia are saying and thinking right now. But a big question that this all points to is, How do we use that anger and frustration that Jermaine talked about in a positive way for change and not let it just fade into hopelessness and despair? Now, the Reverend Dr. Charles L. Howard has been the voice for people in our city working for social justice and encouraging that healing as the chaplain at the University of Pennsylvania. But he also serves as the vice president for social equity and community. So we figured 
maybe he could help us grapple with where we are two years after the murder of George Floyd. And honestly, just how to keep pushing forward through all this. Chaz, thank you so much for joining us today. It's good to be with you all, and I really do appreciate you all, um, as usual, like KYW, having the hard conversations and helping us wade into uh, things that we need to, to wrestle with. You were introduced as Penn's first ever vice president for social equity and community in June 2020, which was just probably a couple of weeks after George Floyd was killed. Was that position created in response to his murder and what followed around the country not that long after that? You know, our university leadership told me that they had been thinking about moving toward a position like this. Um, It was originally going to be called social equity and justice, Um, but they changed it to social equity and community. Um, And the death of our brother, the murder of our brother, George Floyd, accelerated the university's desire to, to bring about this position in the same way I think it affected institutions all around the country and truly around the world to really want to put sort of legs on our words and really kind of bring action to, to what we, what we say we believe. What kind of work do you do exactly in that role to give people an idea of what this all entails? Sure. Well, in, in some sense, it's similar to what y'all do. You know, we, we help our university have these hard conversations. And so the, the very first charge that I got from our university president was to help um, us think about what should our relationship be like around public safety and policing. And so me and another professor here, Professor Dorothy Roberts out of our law school, um, were, were tasked with sort of drafting a series of recommendations for senior leadership around Penn and the police, Penn and public safety. And we had a series of interviews and hearings and conversations with our police department, our students, our faculty and staff, our surrounding community members, some alumni, and, and crafted a range of recommendations in just a couple months that we thought could sort of help us take the next steps. One, to make Penn and West Philly uh, safer, um, but two, to be a model around public safety and, and policing. Uh, because, you know, they, it, it, I'll say this up front, it, it takes a lot of courage to be a cop. And I think the most cops, I think, go into it with a desire to care for their neighbors. On the other hand, the evidence would show that contemporary policing aspects of it are deeply broken, deeply deeply flawed. And I think for the first time in ways that we haven't seen in a long time, police officials and the city have been willing to listen and willing to explore ways of improving and doing better. And so they, that, that is one example of other things that we've done. We've, we've wrestled with campus iconography and our paintings and statues on campus, which is deeply connected to the, the murder of George Floyd um, our relationship with Philly public schools and our investments, things like that, too. You talk about protecting the safety of Penn students and the community of West Philly at large. And a couple months after George George Floyd was murdered, there was another killing right in West Philly, Walter Wallace Jr. How did that hit you and the community at Penn, kind of the layered trauma, I guess you could say? There are a couple levels to the answer. You know, I'm a black man and I'm originally from Baltimore, but Philly is my adopted city. I've lived here for a quarter century. And every city I've lived in, I've been stopped by the police. Baltimore, growing up, Philly, when I was a Penn student here as an employee, I've been stopped by cops in the Philly area. When I went to seminary in Boston 
And I'm deeply aware that, but for the grace of God and a couple of decisions here and there, you could have seen my name as a hashtag. So when you see people like um, Brother Floyd, Brother Wallace, um, or Freddie Gray and, my, and, and Baltimore others, I think that it, it hits knowing that my, my three daughters could have lost their dad and that could have very easily been me. So there's a real personal grief that I think a lot of us feel anytime this, this news like this breaks. I think the other way people on campus responded, you know, our students have been so active when it comes to community organizing and, and, and direct action. And so, you know, our students have been out there marching and fighting, whether it was downtown on 676, on 52nd Street, like our students and quite frankly, some of our faculty and staff have been sort of frontline demanding change. And the way that a lot of the leaders on campus have been trying to, to join the conversation of we can do better. I'll also add that, you know, our, our Penn Police Department has also been of these conversations of recognizing that what has happened to this point is unacceptable. And, and so I think that we've tried to use the, the, the power of our ideas to bring about, you know, universities are meant to be spots of education, but also spots of research and idea generation. We want to sort of be a part of that. Hey, what, what does the world, what could the world look like? It doesn't have to be like this. What can the world look like? I think that's a part of the way that we've processed um, and, and tried to do better. It's an interesting thing as black men that we have where we all have one of, at, at least one, unfortunately, of those stories, like with Chaz, what you described there, whether it's in Philadelphia or Baltimore or, or Boston. I, I have stories from when I was in college of dealing with police officers. My father is a retired police officer, and he has stories of being harassed by cops when he was younger in the, in the 60s and early 70s. We all seem to carry that, and that seems to speak in the work that a lot of us are doing, a lot of people are doing, and I think one of the things that was most beautiful about it too was it was not just black people who were on the streets. I think all of us will remember this. You know, the demonstrations downtown, the demonstrations in the suburbs, demonstrations around the country, many I went to actually were majority white people out there, which was amazing. And I think was, was a part of the healing that people who have never been stopped by the cops, people who don't have people who've been killed by the police, people who have not necessarily experienced racism or standing arm in arm, risking their health in the midst of the pandemic to march for change and demand change. So as, as, as painful and weighty as the moment was, I think you really saw a, a, a moment of, of hope. I'll add one last little thing here. I think a lot of people wanted to fight where they were. And so if even if people weren't marching, you saw people like, like, like changing the curriculum of their book club. And so rather than reading just a novel, they began to sort of read Tanesi Coates, or they began to sort of see different films. And it, like, it seems like such a minor thing to sort of read a book club in our suburban group. On the other hand, like everybody was on this issue. And I think you saw the fruit of that in, in, in all around the country. To that end, what do you think, Chaz, are productive ways to measure progress on this front? When you look at where we've come over the last two years, how do you evaluate and measure whether progress has been made? Are you still feeling some of the same hope that you felt back at that point in time? It's an important question, and I think it's an important thing for us to do. You know, I think that it's an old uh, cliche in religious circles around counting your blessings. 
And, you know, there, there's a part of that that is meant to foster gratitude, but it's also an act in sort of seeing how far we have come and what we have come through. And I think particularly in a moment where it feels like it, it can feel very uh, like, like America is like a, like a very humongous cruise ship that's hard to turn. It can feel like no change is happening, particularly in the wake of mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting. One of the things I keep hearing is nothing's going to ever change. And I think more, more of us are losing hope. And I think it's important to sometimes pause and remember how far we've come, not only over the last 250 years of our country, 400 years in this part of the world, but really in the last two years. And this is not to say that we've landed, that we've arrived at all. We have so much further to go. On the other hand, you'll you'll note of all the different monuments that have come down, you know, and like a statue is just a statue in one sense, but those were, you know, a lot of those Confederate statues were erected to terrorize people as, as kind of a, a quiet threat. And a lot of those Confederate statues are down. The Confederate flag is like banned all through the military, all around the country that, you know, states have changed their flag. And that that's, these are symbols, but symbols are important. You also have policies that have changed, you know, so a lot of companies, be they, Schools or like major corporations really leaned into what can we do to diversify our, our, our business? You know, so what can we do around senior leadership, around recruiting? And, and a lot of that stuff is sort of hard to measure until you really look closely. And so the, the access to leadership, a lot of that has changed. I think the people at this, the, the way that this was a catalyst for people running for office and, and taking on senior and leadership roles in, in the public sector, like all of that has come from that on top of the changes around policing. And, and so I, I think one would see that the mindset of police officers, I think we can have a bigger conversation around the way that police officers police that I think still needs improvement. On the other hand, I think a lot of police officers think very carefully before using excessive force, certainly lethal force, knowing that there was a time where there was nothing they could do to get fired. I think people understand that now there, there is a much greater likelihood of severe consequences. You will likely be recorded and you will likely be disciplined. You will likely lose your job and you may very well go to jail. That's a big change. On top of accountability and transparency, there's a lot of um, certain precincts have changed who responds to nonviolent crimes. And so there's some cool experimental things around the country of rather than an armed officer responding to a loud frat party or someone in mental health crisis, they send a mental health professional out to respond. So th these changes, I think, really are bringing about a difference. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back with more from Reverend Dr. Charles Howard coming up. I'm Jay. I'm Sabrina. I'm Brian. And we're talking with Dr. Chaz Howard about the two years that have passed since the murder of George Floyd and how the community here in Philadelphia has been working toward healing as well as change. In your work at Penn, you're dealing with students, a lot of whom probably didn't really understand things like unconscious bias and systemic racism, I imagine, before they heard about George Floyd. And today, in the, in the years since then, there's been a lot of progress in teaching that, but also there definitely have been some stepbacks in terms of how people have responded to anti-racist curriculum. So how do you go about incorporating that teaching 
your students, whether it's in class or outside of class, and giving them that sense of the, the anti-racist education in a way that they can understand and accept? It's an important question, you know, and I think it's one that our country really needs to keep grappling with, is how do we educate people on being better human beings? How do we educate people about being sensitive to difference, about championing diversity, about how it's beautiful to be a cosmopolitan nation of people from, like, how do we continue to do that? I mean, to, to me, I've been teaching, I've been working at Penn for you know, two decades now. I think that our students more than ever want to learn about these kinds of things. A lot of them are coming far more educated um, on, on diversity. You know, they, the world that I have two teen, two teenagers right now, the world they're growing up in is certainly very different than the world I grew up in. Their friend circles are far more diverse than previous generations, you know, and, and more comfortably diverse than previous generations. They are a generation that is far more comfortable with LGBTQ friends. They have, you know, parents who have two mommies and two dads. They have friends in their circles who are trans. They have friends across religious lines. Uh, again, you know, Philly is a bit of a different city than other cities in the country. But I think that this generation, it's, I, I don't have to twist any arms to get them to want to sit down and have conversations around learning about difference. And then not only learning about difference, but how to push back on racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, Islam. Like we don't have to drag them to the table. They want to do this kind of work, which to me is a deep encouragement. Part of the ways we do it, you know, I, our faculty do a great job of this. Our, I think our, my colleagues in our offices do a good job of this. There's a lot of really great peer education happening. And, and from what I, I've seen, the same is happening all across the city with you know, beloved colleagues at Temple and Drexel and Nova and Swarthmore and Haverford and St. Joe's. And so like all of our schools are, are similar. They, all these schools have really stepped up knowing that these kids are about to be our leaders and we only got through for four years or so. We really want to make sure you're prepared to do better than the previous generation has. Now, Chaz, we, we're still trying to make sense. You mentioned the mass shootings. We're still trying to make sense of this mass shooting that just occurred at Robb Elementary School down in Uvalde, Texas, which was nine days after the shooting at the church in Southern California, which came 24 hours after the shooting in Buffalo, up where the white supremacist targets black people, 10 of them, just cut down in a supermarket. You've also mentioned the word hope. And as many tragedies as we see, this doesn't even get into the the violence we just see in our streets here, where young, where young men and women are dying every day. How do you manage to maintain, I guess, a level of faith, a level of hope that things can get better, that there isn't that hopeless feeling of we can't, there's nothing we can do, this won't change. How do you, how do you keep your proverbial faith going through all this? The killing at Robb Elementary, Tom Nivaldi and Buffalo and Laguna, California and all around, it took real lives. Those were kids. And those were parents and grandparents in Buffalo. But those bullets also pierced the side of a nation's hope. And in a lot of ways, that's what terror does. You know, terror is meant to terrorize. It is meant to strike fear. It is meant to create a, a posture of hopelessness so that people 
change their behavior. It's, it's a very manipulative, very cruel thing. And I think that it has got to be, as individuals, something that we have to continually shore up. For me, the kind of same sight of the greatest pain of this moment is also the sight of, for me, the greatest hope. You know, seeing little kids die. There are fewer things that can bring our whole nation to tears like that. On the other hand, seeing little kids play together across difference, there are few things that can inspire hope in me the same way. So, you know, I'm, I'm blessed in that I work with young people every day and they give me hope. This generation is so much better than my generation, man. They're just so much better. They're smarter. I think they're, they're passionate. They have a greater ease with difference. And I just think they're going to make this where they care more than we did on certain issues. You know, I think that their passion for the, for the environment, their passion to kind of care about people on the other side of the planet and their, their, their intelligence around technology and things like they, there's hope there. That's the first thing. The other side too, man, you know, if, it's a dark moment in our country. It's been, a, it's been a hard two years to be human, a really hard two years to be American. On the other hand, I, I mean, one of my favorite aunts is turning like 98 this year. And I get to talk to her every few months or so. And she's like a, like a beacon of joy because when she looks out the window, she feels like this is a much better country than when she was coming up. And she feels like we're trending in the right direction. It's a blip now. It is a bad moment now. But when she's like, look, y'all weren't here when in the 60s. You weren't here during Vietnam. You know, like she's, she sees it a little bit differently. She's like, I remember those old wars. Like we're doing better. Um, and I think, and I, 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 that gives me hope. You know, I look at my girls and, and I'm nervous to send them to school at times but I'm also excited for what they're going to build in the future. That's my hope. This is the Reverend Dr. Charles Howard. He's the chaplain at the University of Pennsylvania and the vice president for social equity and community. Chaz, thank you so much for coming on with us and bringing this light to the room because this has been a dark week. It's been a tough week for all of us here. This definitely helps a lot of people. Thanks for all that y'all do. Salute. You can follow Chaz at Chaz underscore Howard on Twitter. That's it for today. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Sabrina Boyd Circa. I'm Brian Seltzer. Tomorrow we honor Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month by looking at a series that KYW's anchor Denise Nakano has put together every year called Asian Americans Making Their Mark, which highlights some incredible Asian Americans here in the Philadelphia area. As always, thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves out there. We'll be back at you tomorrow.